So as I said earlier, Jeff's going to put these little black packets back there um, that have the outline for next week's class and some reading material. Um, we are in Romans 8:28 this morning. Um, this chapter, we have described chapter 8 as, as the, the big main thought is the absolute security, the absolute security uh, for the people of God, for the children of God. I, I did a little Google search on uh, popular verses to see which one gets looked up the most on Google. I bet you know the first one. What do you think the first one is? John 3.16. They're like, who is that guy that has that sign up there, right, uh, during the games? Um, John 3.16, number one by far. But in most lists, among the top ten is Romans 8.28. Philippians 4.13 is above that one, of course, but uh, Romans 8.28. Um, and so I have thought about this for a long time um, because what, what has happened, those, these, these seven and a half chapters have really brought us this beautiful context of what this verse actually means. And it is so much bigger and so much better than probably what 90% of the people in the world think it means. And, and so it, it, it's really with a great excitement uh, that we get to just consider this one verse, Romans 8, 28, this morning. Um, uh, a lot of theologians have called it a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. What a beautiful picture. In your outline, I have context and the all-knowing God. Uh, the context of our text deals with knowledge. Right? We'll look at it in a few moments. Um, but particularly right there in Romans 8, he says these are the things we don't know. These are the things we do know. And, and how are we to know? Uh, I probably told you that my older brother Paul and I would have epistemological arguments when I was six and he was eight. We didn't know what epistemology was. I just knew he was wrong and he was certain he was right. My brother Paul would make these statements, I know this is going to happen. And me, being the twerpy little brother that was a little faster than him, I could get away, I would say, you don't know to a certainty. He goes, yes, I do. I know it to a certainty. I'm like, you can't know that to a certainty. I don't know what it was. It might be it's going to rain tomorrow. Cowboys are going to win. It, it, whatever it was, he would say, I know this is going to happen. And I'm like, you use that word. You keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means. It's like predicting the weather in Grove, right? Zero percent rain, and then trees are turned over and broken in half. And like, there is a zero percent chance that we're getting rain until next week. And then, bam. Right? And we're used to that. But there's something beautiful in Christianity. And that is, God can be known. Things can be known for certain. And so, in this text, we'll find that there is such great comfort because of what God knows. Deuteronomy 3, Moses is, is ready, the people are ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is recounting to the people all that God has done, the history of God with the people. In verse 23, he said, I pleaded with the Lord, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Do you know what he's referring to? Moses is referring to the plagues 
to the parting of the sea, to the sending of quail, to the daily distribution of manna, to the snakes coming in, to the, the mountain and earthquake, to the tablets of stone. Moses has seen way more than we'll ever see in our life. I can guarantee you that to a 99% certainty. And yet he says, you have only begun to show me. Oh, oh let, let me see the people delivered into the Holy Land. And so uh, as, that, as that is a great picture of what God does with the church, with a human being, saving them from slavery, taking them to the promised land. Uh, Moses is saying, Lord, you have revealed so much of yourself, but I've just scratched the surface. And then in 29, 29, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So really from, uh, from creation to consummation, God is revealing himself, but human beings have never known him, fully understood him exhaustively. We will always be on a search. He will always be revealing more and more of himself. Galatians 4, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Right? The human being, without a knowledge, without a working relationship with God, is always described as a slave. And so he says that that's what you were before you knew God, that you were enslaved. Verse 9, but now you've come to know God, or rather, he says, be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world who enslaves you? Want, do you want to be enslaved once more? And so in Romans, we have uh, studied the knowledge of God, what he has revealed, what he expects us to know in chapter one, he says, my wrath is being revealed. That what, what you see in fallenness and brokenness and disease, and what you see is my wrath being poured out. You should know that. You should be aware of that. In chapter five, after he explains there's no other hope, in chapter five, he says, you may now have peace with God. You may be united with Christ. He is the one sent to save you. In chapter seven, he knows that we wrestle uh, with the power of indwelling sin. And in, verse, in chapter eight, we know all about the work of the Spirit. Verse 22, we know that creation groans. Verse 26, we know that we don't know how to pray or what we ought to pray as we should. In verse 27, we know that the Spirit groans. Christian, it is just as foolish to claim we know things that we don't know as it is for us to claim we don't know things that we should know concerning our God. He really scolded his people at times for this. Are you still so foolish? Are you still so blind? Elijah on Mount Carmel, what does he do? He mocks all of the other gods publicly. This, where is your God? What can he do? But because our God knows everything, we can rest in his providential care. And so um, this verse breaks down really into five statements all about God's providence, his care, and his sovereignty. So I'm going to read verses 26 and 27 to give us some immediate context. 
And you'll just notice in 26, he says, here's what we know. In 27, here's what the Spirit knows. We don't know. Um, in verse 28, we come to what we do know. So Romans 8, 26 to 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Sermon in a sentence this morning is amidst all the things that we don't know and can't control, a Christian finds comfort in God knowing all things. A Christian finds comfort in God knowing all things all things. So we're going to break this down into five statements, and uh, I thank John Stott for this. As I read through the different commentaries, I like the way he broke it down into five statements that we know about God from this text. The first we know is that God is working. Scripture tells us that he created all that is, all that is, we see all of creation. He did it in six days, and then he rested, but we know that now he is always working. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. I had told you before that when I went to that temple in Kathmandu for Kali, the Hindu temple, as you walk down into the valley where there's bloodshed and uh, it's an awful dark place, you walk down, there's a whole bunch of bells. And as you walk down, you're supposed to ring those bells. Everybody hits those bells, all those greasy fingers on those bells. And I ask our guide, what are, what are they doing? And he says, they're waking up the gods. I'm like, listen, if I was a god and you woke me up with those stinking bells... I wouldn't give you what you wanted. I want to go back to sleep. But our God never sleeps. Our God never slumbers. Our God is always working. Right? When the power goes out, you call NEO. Right? What do they say on their voicemail? There are crews out working. Right? They're out working. Our uh, credit card machine went out. But don't worry, customers. We're working on it. That's what he's saying. God is always working. There's not things that happen uh, or encounters that we have uh, because God has given up, because God has stepped away, because he is no longer providentially working. Our God is working. Now, it's important in this text, in this, in this verse 28, and there's all different ways of being it broke down and, and interpreted, but all scholars agree that God's the subject, okay? Things are not the subject. It's not all things are working in some cosmic way. It is God is working all things. So sometimes you read, it'll say, uh, after God, it'll put a comma, and it might put he. He is working all things. And that's the intent. God is the one at work. In the movie um, Signs, and it's been a while since I've quoted it, but I've been here a long time. So I have to go back to the warming drawer and pull out a couple of illustrations. M. Night Shyamalan's movie Signs uh, depicts this concept. It's, it's, a, it's a priest, probably an Episcopal priest, because he has a wife. And the movie starts out, and you, you know, pan through his house, and he does a, just a great job of, of telling a story without words. You see on the wall the outline of where a cross used to hang. 
you see people calling uh, Mel Gibson uh, father, and he would say to them, I'm not a father anymore. Um, it, it, it is a story about an Episcopal priest who loses his wife in what would seem a random freak accident. And it is this priest dealing with the fact that for all of his life, he's talked about a good and loving and powerful God. And he can't reconcile it with the fact that his precious wife died in this random act. And so as the story unfolds, you see people talking to him all the time about a father, and I'm not, not a father, and people still wanting to confess their sins and all of that stuff going on. Um, and as the story unfolds, his crop has one of those crop signs in it, the crop markings in it. Uh, and, then it's, and then these alien ships come in, and there's these lights in the sky, and everybody is panicking. And his, his brother, who was a, was a baseball player who washed out, is, is sitting on the couch with him, and they're watching the news. And he, uh, he leans over to his brother, the preacher, and he says, can't you just kind of give me some comfort? Can't you be the old you? Can't you just talk to me in a way that, 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 that would comfort me? And this is what he says. Mel Gibson, uh, the, the ex-priest, says, people break down into two groups when they experience something lucky. Group number one sees it as more than luck. It's more than coincidence. They see it as a sign. They see it as evidence that there's someone up there watching out for them. However, group number two sees it as just pure luck. It's a happy turn of chance. I'm sure the people in group two are looking at those lights in the sky in a very suspicious way. For them, the situation is a 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. Here's important. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. Yeah, there are those people. But there's a whole lot of people in group number one. When they see those lights, they're looking at a miracle. Deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen... There will be someone there to help them, and that fills them with hope. See, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs and sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? That's where we find ourselves. That's where we find humanity and I want to tell you, that's where this verse gets misquoted. Do you know how it gets quoted? This verse gets quoted as, oh, don't worry, all things work together for good. Period. You probably heard it. All things work together for good. Period. Right? Don't worry. It's almost like there's just cosmic karma. You know, or, or maybe it's just this way, you know. <laughs> things happen for a reason. Cheer up. Things happen for a reason. Right? That's not what Romans 8.28 is saying. Uh, for it to say that, uh, we could go back to uh, the opening book when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in chapter 117. Right? We could take that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Period. It's that same thought. Right? What does the rest of that sentence say? For all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's qualifiers for it. But I'm afraid that Romans 8.28 gets put out there without context. And it gets thrown out, kind of cheer up. All things work together for good. What we do know, first, God is working. 
Our God is working. Uh, secondly, we know that our God is working for good. That absolutely makes sense, right? Our God is good. Our God is love. Our God is great. One thing I tell people facing tragedy is, is a wonderful thought that when we, when we come face to face with the living God, everything will make sense and there will be no sense in your people where you say, you shouldn't have done that, God. Our finite minds cannot grasp it at times, but our God is good. And he is working everything for the good. Not God is always working for my comfort and my happiness. Not God is always working for the desires if I have enough faith. God is working for the good. And we'll pick that up more next week when we look at verses 29 to 30, specifically as it pertains to us. But it causes us to constantly be assessing what is good? What is God's good? All right? I, uh, what is God's good? I've actually had people ask me to pray for things that are not good. Will you pray for this? I'm like, uh, no, I'm not going to pray for it. In fact, I'm going to pray for the opposite because what you're asking God to do is not good. We may not know what to ask, as it says in verse 26, but our God is good, and all that he does is good. Thirdly, God is working for the good in all things, or, or everything is cooperating through God for the good. Even in our context, our sufferings in verse 7, our wrestlings in chapter 7, our groaning in 20 and 23, all of the good of God is working in everything. All the things are going to cooperate to bring about God's good. As Nygren writes, thus all that is negative in this life is seen to have a positive purpose in the execution of God's eternal plan. And I'm old enough where I miss people, I mourn for people, I see loss of relationship, and in my very own family, there are hard things that I grieve over. And there are days where it's so heavy and I just need to call up one of my good kids. <laughs> it's supposed to be funny. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Charla. Uh. <laughs> you know, I, well, I can't understand it. It doesn't seem like it's all going to work out. How is God going to be glorified for this? And you may have shared the gospel with people that have had such tragedy that, that, that that's the point of their mind. Like, I, I can't, there's just, just no way, if he's good, that the, he allowed this to happen. The apostle says, because we know who God is. Because in the previous verses, he says, the spirit searches our hearts and our minds and it prays and it intercedes according to God's will. We don't know sometimes what the good is. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll face that. You'll have, you'll have times when you're like, God, I, I, I don't know what needs to happen here. Help me trust you. Help him make the right decisions. He says, oh, Christian, we can know this. God is working for the good in all things. But fourthly, God is working all things for good for those who love him. There are two qualifiers in this promise. 
And that's why I say we, we, we quote it out of context. This promise is only directed to those who love God. It's only directed to those who love God. Just as 117 says, uh, he, he, he died, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Uh, I'm not ashamed, it, it, it's a salvation. Who is it for? For all who believe. Here he's saying, this is what we know. That if you love God, if you love God, all the things that are happening are for the good. If you don't love God, don't claim that. In fact, it's the opposite. All things are not working for your good. They are working for your eternal punishment and damnation. And as long as you have breath, turn from your sins to the living God. How wonderful a God who says, this is what I'm promising you. This is what I'm telling you. You may not know today what these things are doing, but you will know one day that all of them are working for the good. Those who believe, for those who love him, for those who love him will find that in all things God is working and God is working for their good. Those who receive and rest upon him, though they come from all nations and tribes and tongues, salvation is open to all without distinction or limitation. But one thing is necessary amongst all those is that they believe and they trust in Christ. Think about this, the first and greatest commandment. What's the first and greatest commandment? Deuteronomy 6, that you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When somebody says that phrase to you, it's okay, all things work together for good. You, as a, as a believer of Christ, say, how do you know that applies to you? Do you love him? And I'm telling you that these two work together. Right? Why, why would I not love him who has displayed his love for us in sending his only son to bear our sin? Why would I not love him? Why would I not trust him in that moment of greatest evil on planet earth? Right, the, the crucifixion of his, his, his dear, perfect, righteous son. God is working all things. Peter uses that in his sermon in Acts 2. He said, you, 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 you crucified him. You were a band of wicked, lawless men. You crucified him. But it was God's purpose. Isaiah goes on in 53. It was the will of God to work through something that we would see as horrific. And so he has given us ample proof in his word and through his son that we are able to hold on to this. Fifthly, we hold on to this because God's purpose is more glorious than any other purpose. Our text tells us that we are those who are called according to his purpose. God's purpose for us is greater than our purpose. That's a wonderful thing, and we have to hold on to it. He's saying, uh, all things are working together for good for those who love me, and those who love me have been called according to my 
purpose. Now, next week, 29 and 30, we'll, we'll, we'll really, he'll just lay out what does that mean to be called according to God's purpose. How did all of that work? And he will lay out the sovereignty of God and the salvation of people. That God purposed, he does it. That's why I chose that passage from Isaiah 46. I will summon a bird of prey from the east. I am God and I will do it and there is none other. But you, my children, are called for purpose. We love because he loved us. We're called to be his. He has sought us out. He has paid for us. We belong to him. And because he has a great and glorious purpose, we know that all pain will one day make sense. It was interesting as I was writing this, it was from my pastoral prayer. You know, we have these three little girls in our church that suffered a lot this week. All right? We had John and Mary, a tree, come right through. You know, these are the people that just give and give and give, right? Drive past the, uh, the house of uh, Wilhelm's, brand new house. They just finished building. Big old tree in front of it. I'm riding my bike and I'm thinking, all things, all things, even these things will work together for the glory of God. Um, so when Signs, the, the movie, concludes... Um, there's a couple things that you, you see in that, in that movie. One, uh, his daughter has this weird tick or something where she always wants fresh water. And so when he walks through the house, there's all these half glasses of water just all over the house. And she's adorable. You know, it's like, hey, what's the matter with this one? It has a hair in it, you know. What's this one? It tastes like dust. And, and, and they're all over the place, right? The son has asthma. And so he, uh, sometimes his breathing ways, they, they close up and, 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 you know, the dad's working through all of this. His brother moved in to help him out and his, his brother uh, was some, some great baseball player in their area. Everybody knew who he was uh, and supposedly he could hit that ball a country mile, right? And he's talking to somebody and they're like, problem is you also had the strikeout record. And he just looks at him, he goes, it just felt wrong to not swing. Just felt wrong to not swing. So, long story short, the aliens come and attack. And Mel Gibson remembers the last few words of his wife. Earlier, he said, the things she said to me, her mind was just doing all these things. There was no purpose behind it. There was no meaning behind it. And yet, his, his wife um, said, see, swing away Um, and so as, as his son the asthmatic is being picked up and the aliens are spraying poison into his lungs he has an asthmatic attack and they lay him down as if he had been poisoned and it triggers in his mind wait a minute wait a minute and he grabs him and he carries out and he gives him his inhaler and he's like Ding, ding, ding. And he thinks, see. And, oh, the other word was swing away, she said. And he says, see. And uh, he tells his brother, grab the bat. And he had this famous bat on the wall. And he picks up that bat. 
and he goes to swing at one of the monsters and he hits the water and the water works like acid on him, right? And all of a sudden, every word that his wife had muttered, everything that seemed so random, works its way out. The kid's asthma, the, the daughter's tick, the brother's baseball, and they're spared. And what I love about this movie and many of his movies is I love the ending. At the ending, you see on the, on the side of the wall where the cross had been taken down, it's back. And you see him gathering his family and putting his collar back on and going to worship. You see, for that moment, for him, all things had worked together for good, and he was able to see it. He was able to see that in this terrible, tragic loss of his wife, that God was working through her words that would stick with him forever. And you see, that's the story of the gospel. And so far be it from us just to say all things are going to work out in some karma way. No, all things will work for the, for the good of those who love him and for those who have been according to his name. And we have seen an inkling of it. And like Moses, we stand at the side of the promised land and we say, Oh, Father, you have only begun to show me your greatness. Because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of what you've promised, because of what it's cost you to make me yours, I can rest in all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Holy Spirit, will you embed into our minds these truths? Even now, as we take and eat bread and we drink the cup, I'm sure at moments the disciples, when they saw their Lord being dragged out onto a cross, so beaten and bruised and his flesh torn from him and the mocking and the spitting. I'm sure they thought there is no way this can be good. In fact, Father, we know that some of them fled. They hid. They were confused. They could not see the glory of the cross. And yet we thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Will you do the same for us, O oh Lord? Will you allow us to live different from the rest of the world? That things won't affect us. The unknown does not scare us. Because we know that you know. We know that you know us. That you have searched us. That you have plans for us. And that there will be no thing that doesn't mean something when we are with you. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us this meal to share together. To remind us that in the brokenness and the, the sinfulness of mankind being poured out upon your Son, we are those who say, indeed, it has been good for us that our Savior was stricken, smitten, he was crucified on our behalf. That it has brought peace to you through his work between us, O Lord. You have worked evil out for the good. You have taken what is broken and you have restored a people. Now, Father, we take these elements and we set them aside. As we eat the bread, may we be reminded 
that you, oh Jesus, gave your body for us, that you were the sacrificial Passover lamb slain on our behalf as we drink the cup. We might celebrate that your blood has been sprinkled upon us and set us apart as holy instruments that you have covenanted to us, that you are God and you will save. For your glory, you will save even us. We thank you for these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.